I swear that's been the key to my success is them never limiting my beliefs and never telling me, oh, no, that's too big of a goal. You can't do it, no matter what my body was doing at the time. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello, fans of Shuklistan, and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I have brought food so we can snack together. Oh, would that food be Oreos or Chips Ahoy? Possibly. <laughs> but, okay, so Nabisco came out with their, I don't know what you would call it, tagline for Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And it's snack together, and I, which I think is rather odd. And then I realized it is in response because for the past year we have all been snacking alone. Yeah, but, you know, should you snack together? Well, I'm vaccinated. Come yeah, snack know. with me. I know. So maybe snack together vaxxed. Yeah. Please, if anyone wants to come and bring me snacks, I am welcome. <laughs> I will welcome you. Okay, so on that Nabisco thing, because A, when I saw the press release, I'm like, somebody worked really, really hard to say a whole lot of nothing. Because really, we got some packaging, and we got a little bit of new stuff. But it's not stuff we haven't seen before. Oh, ex- have you seen Oreos with Pop Rocks in them before? I have oh, not. Oh, do they really have Pop Rocks? I couldn't get yes! past half the language. They're, oh, okay. they're sparkling Oreos. Oh. They're going to explode in your mouth. I want to have that sensation. I do not. <laughs> I don't like my food fighting back. I get enough heartburn, thanks. <laughs> so, okay, we have Oreos with Pop Rocks. We have Oreos with, like, the triple layer of filling, because it's red, white, and blue. Right. And then, like, Chips Ahoy with red, white, and blue chips. Right? So that's not much, and there's packaging. And there's, it's not much to get super excited about. You know what we need? We need the life-size Ted Liggety cutouts again. We do. Like we 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 had for Pyeongchang. We do. Just, you know, put a different uniform on him. Take him out of the ski suit. Put him in, uh, you know, a a track uniform. Good to go. No one will know the difference. He can run. (laughs) Just stand there with your red, white, and blue chips. Ahoy, Ted. We'll be all set. I swear, if I see another one of those, I'm going to be like a college student, and I am totally going to swipe it. <laughs> so, note to anybody who works in a convenience store or a big box store that had a Ted Liggety cutout, if that's in the back room, let us know. Please. Because <laughs> I don't want to snack alone. I want to snack with Ted Liggety. <laughs> oh my God, that could be their giveaway. Don't snack alone. Like, snack with Ted Liggety. Well, the snack together. And who are you going to snack with while you're watching? See, like, that is brilliant because even if it's not in person, you could like have a virtual snacking session. While you're watching a particular event, you know, retired Olympians left and right. Oh, my God. I would enter like a thousand times for that. Right. Why are these people never calling us? We came up with diamond stacking rings. 
Mm-hmm. Remember that? Yes. And we came up with this. We've come up with so many good marketing ideas. Nobody ta- asks us. <sighs> well, we'll have to work on it. Maybe, maybe I'll get at Nabisco. There you go. Okay. Go tweet at them. Hey, before we get started on today's show, big shout out to our Patreon patrons. As you may know, this show takes a lot of work and time and financial investment. We appreciate our listeners who uh, donate some money to help us cover those costs. You can become a patron today at patreon.com slash flamealivepod. So today we are talking paradressage. I'm very excited about this. You are so excited about this. And I am excited because I am always excited whenever we get to talk about animals. Yes. So uh, we are talking with Sydney Collier. Sydney is a U.S. paradressage rider who at age 18 was the youngest equestrian athlete at the 2016 Rio Paralympics. She placed seventh there in the paradressage grade 1B individual event and 12th in the team event. Uh, she was riding the horse Western Rose. She has a new horse now called All in One and they are working toward qualifying for Tokyo. Take a listen. Let, let's start with... What is dressage all about? Because a lot of people go dressage, you know, that's just horses walking around and sometimes they walk around to music. So what's going on here? Dressage is all about the relationship between the rider and the horse and really making something super challenging look super easy because you have this relationship with your horse and it's actually interesting because we make it look so easy that people don't really get all of the hours of work that go into it and it's really neat because when we're showing we're showing a specific pattern and we're getting judged on our harmony with the horse and the movement of the horse. And for us paradressage riders, we're judged on uh, a parallel level to our able-bodied counterparts. So they don't take into account what our body doesn't do. They take into account the horse's movement, how accurately you're riding the test, and really your overall picture with your horse. And to me, that's the beauty of it is that uh, when you're riding paradressage, it puts you on a level playing field with your able-bodied counterparts and your disability doesn't matter anymore when you're on the horse and, and working to master these super intricate little things in the show ring and in everyday training. So it's interesting. You called it a test. That's what they call each, I guess, leg of a competition. It's you're doing a test to test the horse. Yeah. So we have different tests, like basically test out different aspects of our training and of our relationship with the horse. So each quote unquote test and day of competition, the layout of the test is a little bit different and they compose our days of competition. So in Tokyo or any world championship now, the first day of competition is our individual test day where 
we write our individual test for the chance of an individual medal. And then from that day, our and then our team riders are actually selected from our individual day scores. The top three riders go on to represent the team in our team test competition day and vying for the team medals the next day. And that, uh, that takes into account basically a percentage of the individual day score and your team test day. And then, and then my personal favorite is the, the freestyle test day, which is a test that is choreographed to music. And it's, it's really like dancing with your horse. And there's so much beauty to that because you have to really finesse your ride, but also take into account every note of the music. And you really have to know your music like it's your Bible. <laughs> and to me, I think that's just something so beautiful. And to see it in play in the show ring is is my personal favorite. <laughs> yeah, it's very much like figure skating or a gymnastics floor routine where the music is another element of the competition. Exactly. It, it has to be there and it has to complement what you're doing with your horse. And actually an interesting fact is that for freestyle test day, our tests, we have our movements that are required of us and we actually get to choose how we choreograph them to our music. So we can do them however we want within our allotted time with our music. So it's kind of neat because you can put your own little spin on it and it's super fun. <laughs> Talking about the moves, are the, is the individual test, is it prescribed layout? Yeah. So our individual tests and our team tests, they are prescribed patterns that the judges judge us on. So everyone does the same pattern, kind of like figure skating with their compensatory movements and having a set pattern for those two days. So I know Jill was very excited when you were talking about uh, in another interview, the geometry of dressage. So what, what does that mean? So it actually varies from grade level to grade level. So starting at my grade, grade one, our tests are actually all walk. And that sounds really easy until you're actually doing a test all at the walk and having to have FEI level frame, carriage, and consistency of the gate, and having to also ride super accurately. And I'm actually visually impaired. So my eyes lie to me a lot <laughs> and, and I actually count my steps for my movements and then going up the levels, basically they add trot and canter throughout the higher grades. So it goes up through grade five and grade fives are our highest mobility riders. So they're the closest to able-bodied and the closest to a pre-St. George dressage test. But in my test, there are 10 meter circles, eight meter circles, 
there are halts, which sound really easy, <laughs> but they have to be like perfectly square halts. And then we have our free walks on half 20 meter circles, which basically just is the horse lengthening its neck down and relaxing into the contact. And we also have serpentines from quarter line to quarter line. Those are our main movements. Every, every movement has to be very precisely written, especially when you're going for making a team like at the Paralympics and at the higher levels, they nitpick so much because in order to medal at the Paralympics, you have to be spot on with your geometry, you have to be spot on with your gait. And basically it means that your circles, they have to flow, they have to look like circles. And for me as a, as a rider who's blind in my right eye and half blind in my left eye, as I said, my, my eyes are unreliable, so I've had to find ways to ride accurately, even though I can't rely on my vision. And, and I count the steps of my shapes in order to ride them accurately and really know how many steps a shape will take in order to ride it accurately through my test. I know. I'm sort of like thinking this through going, you can't see and you're up on this very large horse that doesn't seem to be a natural. Um, how can I say this? So given your disability, horse riding is not the first thing I would have thought of to try. Yeah, see, actually, actually, I I first started riding when I was seven years old. Um, and that was actually the exact same age that I got diagnosed with Wyvern-Mason syndrome. And when I first got diagnosed, I had basically been able-bodied my whole childhood. And I tried every single sport as a kid. And I was always just a kid out on the soccer field picking dandelions, just like, just it never clicked to say the least. And, and then one day I just said to my mom, you know, I think I want to try riding lessons. And, and I swear my mom had been waiting for that all my life because she used to ride when she was younger too. And so she immediately signed me up for lessons. And the minute I got on a pony, I, I realized, wow, this is what I'm meant to do with my life. <laughs> and it was like everything else just like didn't matter anymore. I was like, this is what I need to do. And at that point, since I was fairly able-bodied, I actually set my sights on making the team for the Olympics in eventing. And I was seven years old at the time. And my parents, my parents didn't ever tell me, that's crazy, you can't do it. They were like, you go, Sydney, you can do it. And then actually at the age of 11, um, since what I have is so rare that less than 100 people on earth actually have it diagnosed, I actually, we ended up going to California in order to seek experimental treatment because I was the first 
kid to basically ever get diagnosed and have the option of treatment. So, so during my first brain surgery, I actually ended up having a massive stroke and I, I woke up, couldn't walk, couldn't like eat, couldn't do anything independently. And I spent the whole summer in inpatient rehab, trying to relearn how to walk, trying to figure out how to live again, because my body just, it didn't click anymore. And I, I was like, all I want to do is be able to ride again. That's all I would talk to my parents about was like, I just want to be able to ride again. That's all. And anything else is like just icing on the cake, really. I just want to ride. And I want to get back to my pony in Michigan and keep riding. And then actually I got really lucky because in 2010, I got to go watch paradressage happen at the World Equestrian Games in 2010 in Kentucky. And I, I saw it happening and I had been going through this very dark time of, okay, my body doesn't really match up with what I want to accomplish anymore. Like, what am I going to do now? And when I saw paradressage happening, it all really clicked to me. Like, wow, if these riders are doing it, then I can accomplish these big things too. And sitting in those stands, I, I said to my parents, to my mom and my Grammy, who was there with me, I said, Next World Equestrian Games and next Paralympics, that's going to be me. And at this point, I was 12 years old, and they they never made me feel like I was crazy. They, they said, yeah, you can do that. And I swear that's been the key to my success is them never limiting my belief and never telling me, oh, no, that's too big of a goal. You can't do it, no matter what my body was doing at the time. And my body sure has thrown me a lot of curveballs along the way with having had with having had more vision loss throughout the years and having had actually four more strokes since then. So so I've had a significant loss of my left side through the years, actually in 2016 after representing the USA in Rio actually was when I had my fifth stroke and that's the most recent one knock on wood <laughs> but but that was the one that actually walked wiped out my ability to walk and my ability to feel anything on my left side so that's been a big curveball when it comes to riding because uh, I really have to tune in more to my left side, even though my brain just wants to totally ignore it. I have like five questions off of that. Hey, I just want to say how thrilled your mom must have been to be a horse person and then go, my daughter's a horse person too. This is awesome. But okay, so how much does your brain hurt at the end of a day of training just because it's had to work so hard to try to, to make the left side un understand what's going on? So much. <laughs> like, honestly, it's a hard feeling because I have to constantly be pushing myself to recognize the left side of my body. And it's weird because I, I have no feelings. 
But the best way that I can think to describe my lack of feeling is whenever I try to tune in to something on my left side, rather than getting normal cues in my brain, I just get this super claustrophobic feeling, almost like I want to crawl out of my own brain. What, like my brain's telling me, no, 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 no don't try that or like no, 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 no you're super closed in by your own brain and it's just it's the weirdest thing I've ever had to try to overcome especially because my brain actually now now recognizes centered as literally like half of my right side since it doesn't think my left side is there so it takes a lot on the horse to really, because I ride one-handed too. So I have to really focus on bringing my hand to the left and, and not allowing myself to just completely dominate the ride with my right side. And I'd say that's one of the most challenging parts, but but I never let it stop me. It, it's kind of really fun to to keep trying to push myself to to overcome it because each day presents new exciting challenges and also presents these new developments in my own abilities. Like the relationship with the horse has been something that is just so therapeutic in a way that like you don't even realize you're doing physical therapy when you're riding and that's the best part is that you're just doing something you love you're not focusing on rebuilding all of these things but you in fact are and that's like part of what inspires me so much about being an equestrian so is the horse specially trained before you get your hands on it so so yeah actually my my trainer warms him up for me every day so that because I'm just doing intense walk work with him basically she warms him up at walk trot canter before I ride every day Uh, but before we got him he was just doing totally able-bodied stuff with an able-bodied rider and and then when when we got him he had to totally readjust to being a para horse and he's taken it on with grace he's he's a really special horse it's hard to find horses that have the international quality but then also have the the right brain to really be able to overlook all of the uniqueness of our bodies as para-equestrians. And we really lucked out when we found Ale. How long did that take to find him? It took a long time. In 2018, at the, like, in about midwinter, we started looking. And then we found him in the beginning of June in 2018, we were lucky enough to find him. We watched, I swear, hundreds of walks and hundreds of videos 
of horses like throughout the world and and especially for walk only horses you you'd think it would be super easy to find horses that would embrace that job and have the quality of walk that you need but it's actually very difficult to find horses with really nice aesthetically pleasing walks because upper level horses they aren't really required to walk all that much so it's just really a quality that a horse has to be born with and has to to really know how to do and know how to love and we got very lucky finding that in LA and and lucky to have a horse owner that um that bought him for me in Georgina Bloomberg by the way that's such a cool little side note that it's Georgina Bloomberg that's working with you and and your horse I know she's been very involved with with horses her whole life but as a as a New Yorker I'm always like oh the Bloombergs yeah she she's incredible and we actually connected at a fundraiser for Rio in 2016 and then after Rio uh, we connected and she joined my team So I want to ask you another question about working with the horse and just how you're able to communicate, because obviously if your left side is not able to make those movements, how are you physically communicating with the horse? Talk with Ale um, sometimes and I just tell him, okay, what we're doing. And then I also, I have to find ways of cueing him to do things differently I, I, with my rein, since I hold it in my hand, I have to basically kind of neck rein almost in a sense. I have to bring my hand over to where I need to. And then I also have to really, really be in touch with my seat bones, like especially my left seat bone, even though I can't feel it. And he's very well attuned to my lack of a left side or my strange spasms sometimes he just tunes them out and I really have to rely on the parts of myself that I can use well but then also not overusing them to the point where he gets uneven if that makes sense it makes it exceptionally challenging because is an equestrian it's all about symmetry so i really have to work on stimulating this symmetry even without having the feeling or the correct use of my left side okay and what's his favorite treat for when he's done a good job oh carrots all the way carrots carrots and bananas but he's he's a funny horse because honestly he'll eat anything and and we found out at Easter this year that he really loves peeps. Like, peeps are his new, like, favorite, favorite all-time, like, Easter treat. So that might only happen once a year, but... <laughs> yeah, he he loves his peeps. <laughs> That that was one question I had. What what Allison had asked when when somebody has a, the reins in two hands, what does that do that you have to overcome? So in two hands, it's basically like a channel, right? 
for the movement to go through the reins and and like it's more of a channel than what I have with my one-handed shorter reins and and that's where our adaptive aid our our compensating aids come in and we're we're allowed to have certain compensating aids that actually allow us to um allow us to ride parallel to our able-bodied counterparts and and so my reign is adaptive in that it's it's shorter so it actually i just hold it in one spot and i don't have any slack in the rain and i just have to basically be very tactical about how i'm using it and in flowing with my hands with the movement while also holding a whip that curves over my left leg to give him cues on my left side so i, I hold a lot in my right hand when i ride <laughs> it it's like kind of a balancing act because I have a lot in my hand with the rein and the whip and but the whip gives him cues on my left side that I actually do have something over there since my left leg can't give those cues in a finessed manner. What is an aesthetically pleasing walk? What does that look like? An aesthetically pleasing walk, it looks flowing it looks uphill and it just looks like you can't like if if i'm gonna put it in layman's terms it looks like you just can't take your eye away you just want to keep watching like you're not bored when you're watching it you you're it's an interesting walk and and the horse's legs they all move at different times rather than moving in pairs we, we, you don't want the horse's legs to move in pairs at all you want them to be relaxed and but also uphill and engaged so it's definitely a fine line in finding those really aesthetically pleasing walks it's like a runway walk they have to have a style to it yeah, exactly. It, it has it has to just be something that that other people and the judges don't want to take their eyes off of. They're 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 so interested by that walk that that they just want to watch it for days. <laughs> because let's get real, a, a five minute walk test like that can get long if it's not a good walk. <laughs> How do you pick your music? Oh, that's honestly, it, it takes a lot of listening to the music while watching the horses gates and, and really thinking of what, what clicks. And I'm very lucky to have a choreographer, Marlene Whitaker, who, who uh, helps me weed out the music. And she actually choreographed my music to Kung Fu Panda and, and, and she, basically made my music tell my story of okay here it starts out easy and then and then it gets a little bit iffy there with my medical stuff and then it's like the grand finale and and I'd say that's the big thing with freestyles is finding music that really complements your horse's gait and that really complements your own style 
and tells your own story. Because if you connect with your music, it's just so easy to write it in competition and to and to practice it and to want to listen to it a bunch to get used to it. <laughs> when you're testing music and you're seeing what the horse's gait and how that matches, does the horse ever pick up that, hey, we're doing music here and I can show you some moves? See, it's funny because they'll they'll definitely tell you what music they like and don't they'll move to they'll move differently to music that they don't like and move differently to music that they do and like they're they're very opinionated <laughs> especially I know Ale he he we had some music we tried with him and he he was like not flowing the way he normally does and, and we're like okay time to change our music that time to try a different one and when we tried out our current music he was like yep mm-hmm, that's the one like they they know they all have their own personalities and they know <laughs> i want to meet the horse who's the fan of rap Right. We'll see. It's it's interesting because so now we actually are allowed to have words in our freestyles, but in in some people do, uh, but it's definitely more geared towards classical and and versions of classical or or pop music that's turned into classical songs. Yeah, very much like figure skating. Yeah, right? Exactly. Gotta got keep it a little perfect. <laughs> I mean, my, if you look at me, you might think that might be the kind of music I might choose, but no. <laughs> See, that that's just the kind of music I listen to to gear up for competitions. I mean. <laughs> Simple for him. He likes the classics. Yeah. Ale, Ale listens to the cool, calm, and collected playlist. It's funny because I actually have, I have two playlists. I have my one to pump up, like, a little bit before, and then I have, and then I have my one to listen to closer to when I'm showing, and that one's, like, the calm, relaxed, like, okay, this is, we're just going to flow playlist. I learned very early on, okay, you can't listen to, like, the rap songs right before you're going into the ring, because then I just go in and I'm like, ah, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> got to keep, got to keep it simple. Got to keep the, the heart rate down so that Ale stays, stays calm as well, I'm sure, because I'm sure he can sense oh, yeah. your emotions. Definitely. Horses, they, they definitely do. They, they sense how you're feeling, how your day has been. And, and like, that's what's so unique about equestrian competition is that it's not like a bike. It's not an inanimate object. There are another living being, so they could wake up being grumpy or they sense exactly how you're feeling. And you really have to learn how to channel exactly how you're feeling into constructive energy going towards competition. And I feel like that's what uh, 2020 has really been an asset for me in terms of has been 
really working on my mental fortuity and really working to improve my own mental game, just going towards selection trials and and hopefully eventually Tokyo. What sort of things have you been doing to improve your mental game? So I've been doing a ton of visualization, actually, like just because this summer there were months where, okay, competitions were scarce and I was just here at my apartment and training with Ale here at home. And I work with a sports psychologist and she she's like, okay, just because you're not able to be in the competition arena doesn't mean your brain can't be in the competition arena. And visualizing has really been an asset to me it just with the games delay and with COVID-19 and all of the current situations I've also been meditating and I've been uh, working on really fine-tuning my brain just in terms of my routines in terms of really ironing out things that previously I may have overlooked just from either a lack of time or a lack of awareness. And and I've also been taking the time to really get super fit and and work on my own uh, nutrition. Let's talk about fitness for a minute. Some people might say, well, you're sitting on a horse. What kind of fitness do you need? So what, what kind of fitness do you need to be able to ride at that level? A lot. Like, honestly, I I have to be as fit as Ale. And, and especially what's important is uh, my cardio work, my core work, and, and my time in the gym is a total asset to me in the saddle because I'm able to work on the fine motor movements that I might not be able to in the saddle without negatively affecting Ale. And and really um, being able to really focus on my gym time and my fitness in 2020 and also right now has, it's like ignited a passion in me for adaptive fitness. And, and I really aspire to be as fit as Ale and as a rider because as you said people might not think that the rider has to be as fit as the horse but it's a big asset to you if you are because your muscles really work better in the saddle and translate better in competition if you're fit and if you're really focused on how your body works off of the horse. How long before competition time do you have to start preparing? So I, I've actually worked very closely in conjunction with my sports psychologist to really fine tune my pre-show routine. And I've gotten it to two hours before I ride where I have to literally shut down tunnel vision, not allowed to like interact with anyone I just put on my noise canceling headphones and I listen to my music and I actually draw out my test I visualize and I start slowly getting ready 
at the two hour mark because I am so extroverted that if I don't take those two hours, I found that I literally, I, since I feed off of the energy of other people so much, being an extrovert, I would go into the ring all like, ah, I'm so excited. <laughs> and, and with dressage, it's, you're allowed to have that excitement, but it has to be a channeled, focused excitement or else your horse feeds off of it in a negative way, if that makes sense. So it's taken a lot of fine tuning to really know what it takes on a competition day for me to be successful for Ollie. But we've gotten it down to a, a really good program to where I, I'm just consistent about it and I can just own my program for competition days and for days leading up to competition. Is there anything else we haven't talked about in dressage that would help us watch it better as as spectators and fans? Oh, that's a good question. I would say really the thing to look for is, from a layman's perspective, is the relationship between the horse and the rider. And is the rider making it look effortless? Like, do the horse and the rider look like they're working together to make the test look beautiful? And that's really what dressage is all about, is the relationship between the horse and the rider. And, and making, I mean, and then there are all of the outside factors, but good dressage is all about that relationship and about and about making it look its best in your five minutes in the show ring. There was one other thing I forgot to mention about Ollie. He actually, so he actually is blind in one eye, just like me. What? Okay. Which which eye? His, his right eye. So, so he's blind in his right eye. I'm blind in my left eye. So together we we have one good pair of eyes. And and we so his show name is All in One. So we're literally All in One. So what did was your because you didn't compete with Ale in Rio, right? That was a different horse, right? Yeah, that was a different horse. And was that horse full? It had full vision. Yeah, yeah, that horse had full vision. Okay, so what's that transition to working with a horse with full vision to working with a horse that's blind in one eye? See, it's interesting because he he makes it easy. He's not spookier on one side than the other. He's not he he doesn't um make it difficult like it's not really something that we have to fixate on in in training just in that he he's basically like any other horse he doesn't let his vision change anything in our training so so that's pretty interesting like but it's just kind of an interesting dynamic because sometimes they'll just be something that I'll look back on my video and I'll be like oh that makes sense because of his vision and then I mean I can't use his vision as an excuse 
so then I have to, to you know, go back and do it better the next day. <laughs> is it is it when you look at the video go oh okay so he is seeing x so that's not the direction we need to go or that's so this is how we're going to compensate for it it's it's kind of it's kind of like i i just have to be vigilant about not letting his vision be a crutch for me or be an easy excuse or out for me not doing things correctly, if that makes sense. Like, like I have to hold my own self accountable for, okay, it could be his vision, but in reality, there are things that I need to do better. It's also, you know, I could think that's kind of a fun challenge too, in a sense. I mean, it, it's it's like a puzzle, and you 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 got the five thousand piece puzzle to put together, right? But it's it's interesting because it doesn't really affect our training or our relationship. Like he he's just like any other horse, and he doesn't let it make him bitter, or he doesn't let it make him like he doesn't let it give him excuses just because he can't see on one side he he he's always always just you know the same the same consistently awesome horse which which is pretty uniquely great about ollie (laughs) we're we're literally all in one (laughs) fantastic well uh, thank you so much Thank you so much, Sydney. You can follow Sydney on social at Sid's Paraquest, and she her website is sidsparaquest.com. We will have links to all of that in the show notes. Sydney is competing at, on June 17th through 20th at the Tryon CPEDI and final Paralympic observation event in hopes of qualifying for her second games. Very excited for her. It was it was just it was so interesting to learn about dressage. And, uh, you know, I, we know it's one, it's like a twizzle for me still, but I respect it a whole lot more. So thank you, Sydney, and good luck. We'll be cheering for you. Welcome to Shook Plus Don. It is time to check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive, our roster of past guests, and uh, we cheer for them and see what they're up to. First up, Mallory Comerford, swimmer, is competing in the Tier Pro Swim Series in Indianapolis. It's it's being held uh, the 12th through the 15th. She is entered in the 100-meter freestyle and 100-meter fly. We had talked about this earlier. Author Roy Tomazawa is on Brazilian TV, but now the video is available. So we we will have a link to that in the show notes. Jenny Fuchs, our boxer, announced a project she's been working on for a while. It's called The Me You Can't See, and it aims to bring more awareness to mental health issues. It's produced by Oprah and Prince Harry, so, you know, she could have let that one slip. She, She knew how to keep it tight there. Exactly. So she is on the first and second episodes and talks about her struggle with OCD. The show premieres May 21st on Apple TV+. Chloe Kim and Alex Diebold were named to the 2021-22 U.S. snowboard team. Author David Davis wrote an article for the Defector website called Hockey's Cold War was the summit of two photographers' careers. We will have a link to that in the show notes. And finally, Team USA mom Shari Von Reason has retired after 22 years with the USOPC 
And a couple days after she announced her retirement, she was honored with the City of Colorado Springs Spirit of the Springs Award. I don't know what she's going to do with herself. She's had like thousands of kids for all these years well, taking care of all the athletes. She's just going to catch up with them now and see all the grandkids, you know, but good for see her. all the grandkids. Good for her. She's done so much for the USOPC and so much for the athletes and uh, has had a great impact on them. So she will be missed, I'm sure. That sound means it's time for a little history. It is the 25th anniversary of the Atlanta 1996 Olympics, so every week we're looking back at some of the stories from these games. It is my turn this week. Very excited about this. So I thought, you know, because we talked about paradressage, I thought that would be the obvious thing to talk about this week, especially since Para Equestrian made its debut at the Atlanta 1996 Games. And I started looking at that. Yeah, I know, right? And then I saw that the athletes rode on borrowed horses. And I said, that is a rabbit hole. I don't have time for a rabbit hole this week. So I thought, we haven't talked about the Atlanta Paralympics yet. Where do we like to start? Mascots. We love mascots. So, Our entire show started with a show about mascots. That's right. And bless you for all of you who go back and, and do our completest with the show. I'm, I'm very impressed. <laughs> Not even I do that. So the mascot for the Atlanta Paralympics was a phoenix named Blaze. Blaze was created by Trevor Stone Irvin of Irvin Productions in Atlanta, Trevor is no stranger to Olympic artwork. He had produced art for three Olympics. So he did Coke's press kit and posters for Lake Placid 1980. He did Coke's posters again for LA 1984. And then in 1996, he did some posters and T-shirts for Atlanta's Olympics. And he was a finalist in the Olympic mascot competition. His entry was Peter Peachnut. A cross between a peach and a peanut. Two of Georgia's big crops. <laughs> you have a look. I don't even know what to say. I mean, it's sort of like all of a sudden Izzy becomes understandable in that context. I, I don't know, but but uh, <clears throat> Trevor does not have kind things to say about Izzy, that's for sure. But. Well, I'm not sure his peach nut <laughs> was that much of an upgrade. <laughs> but. Uh, Trevor kind of got the last laugh because he created Blaze the Phoenix. Blaze was deliberately not disabled. Previous Paralympic mascots had been disabled, but they wanted to show overcoming adversity. So the Phoenix rises from the ashes again and is glorious. And much like that, you you find that in parasports. So the origin story of Blaze was written by author Betsy Duffy, who is also from Atlanta. And, you know, a long time ago... Uh, on a planet far away called Pyrrha, there was a radiant firebird and he lived alone and he possessed the spark of the games. And time passed on and his great glow began to fade. And when it was down to one final spark, he took that spark from his heart and put it into a magnificent egg to wait until others rose up who were ready to share the, that same love of the games. And after a thousand millennia in the time we call today, that egg hatched and another phoenix emerged. And it was more radiant than the original phoenix. And he heard the call 
from the other side of the universe of people who also had the same spirit he did for the Paralympic Games. So he flew to this small blue planet called Earth, traversed around, and found his new home in the city of Atlanta, where he could share the eternal spirit of the Atlanta Paralympic Games with everyone. So it's an alien. No, it's a phoenix. From but another an, planet, okay? It's an alien bird. All right. Well, it is very pretty, though. We'll have to post a picture of this. It's, it's quite beautiful in the colors and the... Yeah, he uh, is very colorful. His colors are, if you want to talk about colors... Uh, yeah, pure, so we got some cobalt. Pure, no, 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 you don't. Oh. You have some pure purple, some phoenix oh. yellow, some blaze red, some feather green, and raspberry. So if uh, it, you know, if you're a graphic designer like Listener Don or Listener Milo, those are Pantone Violet C, Pantone One Two Three Five C, Four Eight Five C, Three Two Zero C, and Two Four Zero Five C. Okay, the rest of us will call this cobalt, turquoise, yellow, and orange. <laughs> but it is quite beautiful, I have yeah. to say. It's he looks a little angry, which I would be if I've flown across the universe. I'd be a little tired. I might want a a peach nut as a snack. We'll we'll let you know what he snacks on. Just hold on. He's eight Ooh. foot three. Oh, he dear. weighs fifteen pounds. His wings... wait 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 wait. He's eight foot three and he weighs fifteen pounds. Just a bird, man. They have thin bones. He's got to fly. Uh, his, okay. His wingspan is eight foot six. His chest is sixty nine inches, and his beak is twenty inches long from front to back. And he weighs 15 pounds. Yes, right. He in, he eats uh, vegetables, fruits, and grains. He can see more than two years into the future. His range, his flying range, is worldwide, except Antarctica, but he roosts solely in Atlanta. And his lifespan, well, he's an undying spirit. His faves, his favorite foods are peanut butter and salsa sandwiches. Egg rolls with ketchup and sweet and sour spaghetti. That is cultural abominations. <laughs> I mean, no wonder he only weighs 15 pounds. Who could eat any of that? His hobby is collecting hats from around the world. Like Tams, berets, baseball caps. Keep his head warm. And his favorite pastime is hanging out with 4,000 playmates. Who I believe would be the para athletes of the Paralympics. Well, as long as he's not sharing his absolutely revolting food <laughs> creations with them, <laughs> I guarantee those were not served in the village in Atlanta. Right. So Blaze was chosen because he was a symbol of renewal and perseverance and determination, and because of the significance of the Phoenix as a symbol for the city of Atlanta. And that alone made Blaze very popular. And so they real and the organizers realized that he had the potential to bring in a lot of money. So previous Paralympic mascots had generated less than a million dollars in sales, but it was thought that Blaze had the potential to bring in 25 million. And that was really important because there was a question of how they were going to pay for the Paralympics. Now, do, do you remember when scientists found that ant colony that went from like spain to italy i think maybe in the aughts 
No. Okay, so there's this really long ant colony through Europe. And I didn't want to go down a rabbit hole, but I entered the ant colony with this story. You're about to make my head hurt, aren't you? Yeah, right. So I found this article in the Journal of Legal Aspects of Sport. Uh, the article's by Mary Humes and, and uh, Ted Fay. And there was a little legal dispute over ownership of Blaze. Blaze was going to have its ownership it, within the, the Paralympic Committee. Blaze's ownership was going to be transferred over to the U.S. Disabled Athletes Fund. But the USOC said, no, no. Blaze is a Paralympic mark, and we own that because we own the rights to the Paralympics. But the Paralympic Organizing Committee had been very careful about how they treated Blaze. So Blaze kind of stood alone. He was not often with the Paralympic logo or the Paralympic wording. He even had his own typeface, Galaxy, if you're curious. Because he came from outer space. Right, right. So the USOC says, keep saying, oh, no, 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 no. Those are still Paralympic marks. We will own those after the games are over. And APOC says, you think so? We are going to sue you for that. So, you know, I didn't really want to set a precedence for this segment. But the, where, where it gets to the point of we're going to sue you, the article ends. And the article's published in 1995. And I, I figured that in 25 years, we'd have to have an answer to this. And I did a little sleuthing and ended up talking with Andy Fleming, who was the president and CEO of the Atlanta Paralympic Organizing Committee. And so I want you to take a listen to this. So the Olympic Committee, because of the, their ownership over the, the Toronto Olympic and all of its marks and designations uh, has a mark, marketing agreement with the host committee for the games each year. And the USOC has argued over the years, and this goes back to the 70s, okay. has argued that it also has um, uh, ownership of Paralympic terms and designations. Although uh, that wasn't clear, uh, completely clear in U.S. law or any other place when we were hosting the Games. But in any case, uh, the Paralympic Organizing Committee signed a marketing uh, agreement with the USOC over the, and essentially uh, agreed that the USOC would control the use of the Paralympic terms and uh, logos and marks for the purpose of our games, our games being the 96 Paralympics. So as the games evolved and uh, we developed the, our own mascot, uh, Blaze, the USOC asserted that it had uh, rights to uh, market Blaze or to control the use of the Blaze mascot in perpetuity. And, and it was, it's common uh, for Olympic organizers to, after their games are over, the Olympic Organizing Committee finishes its business and essentially goes out of business. And, you know, it's always the plan. Typically, they retire their mascots with their games. However, with the Paralympic uh, mascot, we had developed a program with one of our 
licensees to develop the Blaze character to live beyond the games and to become a cartoon figure. Anyway, there's a lot of work put into developing the character and the storyline for a kids-oriented cartoon series that would you know, present Blaze uh, in that light and also uh, present Blaze as sort of a beacon of hope, if you will, for kids with disabilities to see that the, the figure you know, could be a, a transformative figure and create a lot of value in that. So the, essentially, the dispute that we got into with the USOC was over the use of the Blaze mascot after the 96 Paralympics were over. Right, because some of the things I was reading was Blaze was a better mascot than Izzy, especially in terms of marketability, and it seemed like the USOC wanted to make sure it got a piece of the royalties. Yes, and, and it also, it was that, it was financial financial aspects, but also it was control. Okay. Uh, USOC wanted to control the future use well, first of all, I wanted uh, Blaze to go away after the 96 games because that's um, the way the USOC has always, had always worked with its local organizing committees. So for the USOC, it was kind of a no-brainer. But from our standpoint, those of us who saw the uh, Paralympic Games as being the springboard to developing sources of support and greater awareness in the United States about the Paralympic movement saw a great opportunity or thought we had a great opportunity to develop a meaningful source of support for the movement going forward. So we were looking at it as sort of a watershed moment for the Paralympic movement in the United States. And at that time, when we were going through all this, the USOC had not yet taken the role that is subsequently taken in its development of the Paralympic movement in the United States. It was an open question uh, at the time that we were going through this dispute with them. So when the Amateur Sports Act was redone, if you will, in 1998, then a lot of the things that had been put into movement in the early 90s and through the uh, the Paralympic Games in 96, a lot of the, the things that were developing there came to fruition with the passage of the amendments to the Amateur Sports Act in 1998. So at the time, the position of the Paralympic side was that the USOC was exerting control and ownership over um, everything having to do with the Paralympics, but not providing any support in exchange or very little support in exchange. So in that unclear environment, those of us on the Paralympic side wanted to preserve all of the avenues that we felt could support the uh, the Paralympic movement going forward. And because Blaze is still used, I'm, I'm guessing you won that part of the argument? It was a very difficult time. We we had a marketing agreement with the USOC. We did not accept the USOC's assertion, assertion that it would uh, control the use of Blaze once the games, 96 games, were concluded. And 
So we actually sued the USOC in order to get a court to determine essentially what our marketing agreement meant for the the use of the term going forward. And that came down to the, the very final days of going back and forth with the USOC. USOC, uh, they decided not to pursue their interests in the in controlling the term, so it agreed to the, the, the uh, or excuse me, the, the Blaze character could be controlled by the Paralympic Organizing Committee, which then, uh, by then, had created the successor organization um, called U.S. Disabled Athletes Fund and then Blaze Sports America to serve as the repository for the character going forward. So it came down to it came down to eleventh hours, but in the final analysis, the USOC acquiesced to the to the position that those of us who were working on the Paralympic side had asserted uh, throughout the, this period of time. Wow. It never went to court, so therefore, it never went to court. It uh, came very close. So yeah. Oh man, so much litigiousness, right? And so unnecessary, right? right? So Irwin, who had who had designed Blaze and was bitter about uh, not getting the Olympic mascot, he ended up getting the last laugh in all this because Izzy was not as popular a mascot as the Olympic Committee would have hoped. But Blaze still exists and is a working mascot. He's the mascot of Blaze Sports America, which is, as uh, Andy said, is the legacy organization of the Paralympics from Atlanta 1996 and is... Uh, one of the most recognizable symbols of disability sport in America, and you can still see him regularly. Uh, Blaze Sports Georgia has a specialty license plate in the state of Georgia, so you might see Blaze driving around on a car, maybe wearing a little beret from his collection. How are them peach nuts? Got a lot of news from Tokyo because we're 70-some days out from the games. First off, uh, T-Bach was supposed to go visit Japan and be at the torch relay in Hiroshima, but he opted not to go because Japan is still in a state of emergency. That state has been extended pretty much through the end of May. So uh, it's affected the torch relay uh, in many ways. There are four legs where the relay has been taken off of of public roads in different prefectures. Some of these prefectures are looking, and this goes from May 17th through the 24th, and some are looking to have events where they have the torch in a confined space or they have torchbearers who don't run or they run around a little square and they can still have their moment with the torch. So uh, that's a little frustrating for the torch organizers, I imagine, but uh, it's tough. To be expected. I mean, we knew this torch relay was not going to go off without a hitch. Exactly. Paralympic torch relay update. We said a few weeks ago that there was going to be a ceremony at Sagamihara where there was a massacre at a care facility for people with mental disabilities. And some of the relatives of the victims of these stabbings uh, voiced opposition for this event and uh, said that uh, it was unacceptable to use that site as a festival event. So the Paralympics have opted not to have a ceremony there. You have to respect the families, though. Several 
host cities have canceled training programs. Uh, The Kyoto News said at least 31 municipalities have called them off, and that affects teams from the U.S., U.K., Belize, Russia, and East Timor right now. The Kyoto News, we talked, was this last week, where we talked about the the uproar over the organizing yes, committee? Yes, the, the, they were taking all the nurses. Now they're taking all the doctors. Right. So they had uh, asked for volunteer doctors. They needed 200. 280 applied. But when you think about it, it's the doctors on staff will be orthopedists and dentists. Not, Not necessi- people who are generally going to be treating COVID. Right. It's good that they have the interest, so hopefully that gets them what they need. A vaccine rollout is still slow in Japan, but plans are to have the entire elderly population vaccinated by the end of June. Speaking of vaccinations, Inside the Games have reported that the Brazil Olympic Committee is taking the IOC up on its offer to have uh, vaccinations. So they will have athletes, officials, and media who are going receive these vaccinations And they've also shipped a whole bunch of their PPE because apparently all the delegations are going to be expected to bring their own PPE with them. And they shipped off all their equipment that needs to go to Tokyo. So like the boats and weightlifting equipment and other other kinds of training equipment that they need or big equipment for competitions. And that it was 20 plus tons of stuff, which included the PPE. And Brazil is not exactly a a huge delegation a lot of test events are happening so uh they had test events for diving volleyball athletics and para athletics for the most part they went off without a hitch the diving test event had one team official who tested positive ahead of the time ahead of the event and they put that person in quarantine right, right away but no other outbreak of covid has been reported or discovered yet Interesting thing about athletics, which we might see, I I was not sure how this is going to play out for Tokyo, but uh, Mondo, who is the supplier for athletics equipment like hurdles and the pole vault bars and that kind of stuff, they have created light emitting diode technology that will allow these things to light up and that will enhance the viewing experience both in the stadium and on television so it would be like oh lanes are going to light up because a track event's going to happen or the pole vault uprights will light up because a pole vaulter is competing now and you would be able to know like oh these are where things are happening and where i can direct my attention and the lights have the ability to change like so it would be gold silver and bronze and there's also red and green for like this jump cleared this jump not cleared they can show things like disqualifications and uh, it looks like it's going to be pretty cool so i don't know how much of that is going to be at tokyo although they said there might be some but look for it in athletics events coming up next year because i bet it'll be full force for 2024 i'm ready for a gold light A gold circle of light that, you know, just beams around you when you win, like you're a saint. Uh, Team GB has released its kit. Did you see this? It has pinstripes. I love pinstripes. (laughs) I have never seen kit with pinstripes before. I wonder if that's going to be more of their opening ceremonies. 
Right. It was more that formal? kind of ceremony. Oh, okay. To Ooh, it. that could look sharp. I know. Sharp as a pinstripe. <laughs> and finally, Tokyo 2020s uh, put a fan zone section on its website. I am very excited about this. It's got little magic moments. There's trivia game. They're also going to have brackets and a fantasy section. So you can put together a fan. They're going to do their whole fantasy Olympic games. You can put together a team. You can have a little league and play with your friends. So we will do a keep, uh, uh, keep the flame alive league. And once we know more, we will share that with you. But right. That's not coming out until July, the league information, but okay. the fan zone site bits of it are up and running, but the league isn't coming until July, but there will be a shook Flaston league. Oh, I'm so excited for that. And I will lose. <laughs> you never know. You because never I, know. I am so bad at fantasy sports. If you ever want to fan, win a fantasy sport, play against me. And if you become a Patreon member, you can hear how bad I am in Patreon sport. Because what was it last month? We had the bonus audio of me losing miserably. Oh, yeah. With uh, the mascot madness. Oh, yeah. yeah. You never know. This could be your year. Could be your year. Okay. So I think I'm going to start working on my brackets and my dreaming about my fantasy team now. Sounds if, like a good use of time. Exactly. Uh, thank you again to our Patreon patrons. If you can't do Patreon, hey, tell a friend about the show because it always helps us to find more people. Uh, we love finding our people and we really appreciate all of you who do listen and are part of our friends because you make the Olympics and Paralympics so much more fun to watch. That will do it for us this week. Let us know what you think about paradressage. And I'm talking to you, listener Patrick, because you were excited about this. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta. And keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Join us next week when our guest will be air rifle shooter Ginny Thrasher. So as we go out to music by Archdale, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. Sometimes you think that you were in the movie. A stop and recreation of what's inside. I don't want to snack alone. I want to snack with Ted Liggity.